Rachel Berenbaum, author of A Bend in the Stars. And today I'm here with Robert Jones Jr., author of the brand new novel, The Prophets. This book blew me away. I cannot express how much I loved it. I'm thrilled to have him here today. Robert, tell us, what is your book about? Thank you for having me, Rachel. The Prophets is about two enslaved young men on a plantation in Mississippi during the 1830s, 1820s, and they're in love. Um, and their love threatens the sanctity of the institution of slavery from various points of view. And the prophets is my attempt to understand what it must have been like to be both black and queer in a time where being black alone was harrowing. Um, and that's a little bit about the prophets. <laughs> well, I thought it was just brilliant. And I loved that the book started with a letter to the reader. And uh, you wrote, I'm just going to read a little quote here. As a Black queer person who has felt so cut off from my lineage, the question I wanted to ask, did Black queer people exist in the distant past? Of course they did right? And you write that. But um, I wanted to ask you about that search because you said you went searching for them. And I, uh, I wanted to know how that brought you to Samuel and Isaiah. Well, as an undergraduate student in college, I minored in Africana studies. And um, I got to read such brilliant work by Black authors, um, as well as uh, a lot of race theory. Um, and of course, a lot of the slave narratives. And um, something stuck out to me. Um, all of this reading I was doing and I could not find prior to the Harlem Renaissance, any discussion of what we now call queerness in, in black communities. And so I set out for a search. I said, Is, could this be the case? Could it be that black queer people didn't exist until the 1920s? And of course the answer to that is no, but I, couldn't find anything in the literature um, other than um, in a book called Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, um, which is a slave narrative. She talks about um, a male slave being raped by a, a male master. Um, and I thought, okay, that's, I guess that's something. And then also in Toni Morrison's Beloved, there's a character, Paul D, who is sexually assaulted by an overseer. And so I had these two examples and I said, but what about love? And that started me on my quest to look for in the cultural record, um, any basic ideas about what was not heterosexual prior to the Harlem Renaissance. And I could not find it in the standard literature. I had to go to oral histories and I also had to go to oral African history. So outside of the United States to find um, any mention of what it might've been like, where queer queerness existed um, and found it there. And it gave me courage to write about something that I had never read before. Um, and Toni Morrison also says, you know, if you cannot find the book you wish to read, you must write it. So I started writing it. And you've said this is a love story. And I agree, this is a love story. It is indeed. Um, I, 
it's so hard to tell a love story set in a period of such violence. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, slavery was violence. And that is not often how it's taught in American school systems. Um, we are often taught that slaves were happy and well-fed and um, it wasn't that bad. It was a civilizing um, enterprise. It brought Jesus to the um, heathens, but it was actually one of the most dehumanizing and degrading um, enterprises in human civilization. And I wanted to make sure that I talked about that, but at the same time, I wanted to ensure that the humanity of the characters I was writing about was communicated clearly. And one of the ways that that is communicated clearly is through the love that endured untold and unspeakable crimes. So. Mm -hmm. So I was going to say, as much as I thought love was the main theme, um, Isaiah actually has a quote. Um, he says, anybody with a whip going to use it and people without one going to feel it. Oh. And I thought that was really the other main theme of the book. Yeah, um, it, it is. I, I don't want to think that this is human nature. I want to believe that this is a product of living in a white supremacist capitalist patriarchy where we have this idea that people should be placed on like a pyramid system where the white male, uh, cisgender, heterosexual male is at the top and everyone is successively lower. I don't know if that is human nature or simply the avarice of a few being um, imposed on the rest of us. But what I do realize is that people who have any sort of power abuse it. Um, I like to make a, dis a, a, a dis I'd like to distinguish between power, which I think is dominion over other people and empowerment, which is dominion over oneself enough of us don't distinguish between those two things. I want power over myself. I do not want power over anyone else. And I think that is maybe a solution to our problems in terms of how these dynamics work, but power is just a corruptive force on human beings and whoever is holding the power is corrupted, irrespective of race, gender, class, um, whatever their situational power is, because poor people obviously don't have institutional power. But if you have situational power, parents over children, um, the able-bodied over disabled, whatever the paradigm is, whoever has the power in those situations will abuse it. And, and, and that's sad, but it's, I, I have no other evidence that it's not true. 
So I want to shift a little bit and ask you about the uh, biblical aspect of this book, because I really thought that was some of the most uh, brilliant parts of telling the story, the way that you got to these themes. Um, so, of course, the name, the prophets, right? We start, we know from the beginning and from page one that this is going to have the you know strong biblical flair there. So I have to admit that I know just enough about the Bible to be dangerous, <laughs> but not to be well read, super well read, okay, as I ask you these questions. So um, I, I wanted to start, but I was just so curious, how did you study the Bible? How did you, you know, is it formal, informal? How did you do it? It was both formal and informal. I um, grew up in a house, oddly, that was on my mother's side, Nation of Islam, and on my father's side, Southern Baptist. But the way religion sort of functioned in, in my upbringing was that it was not just um, practiced as a let's go to church or let's go to mosque, but it was cultural. So it informed the kinds of music we listened to, the, the choices of, of TV shows we watched, um, the songs we heard, all of that kind of stuff. And it kind of imbued me with a spiritual sense where maybe I didn't know every single chapter and verse of the Bible, but I was familiar enough with it that I understood its um, underlying meanings and points and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. However, thankfully, my mother rejected outright both. She did not believe in any institutional or spiritual system where women were presented to be secondary or property. She did not, my mother does not believe Anything that says that my body is not my own can be trusted. And she then set the groundwork for me as I'm learning that I'm queer, as I, I come into my understanding of myself as a queer being, that I don't have to abide by these codes. They're not written ironically in stone, <laughs> but um, I can be my own person, that I can find value in myself irrespective of what these religions are saying about me as as an individual and i in as i got older i started to sort of research the idea of these religions and realize that they usually come with colonialization mm -hmm. my ancestors did not practice christianity or islam they practiced their own spiritual ideas that dealt with ancestral knowledge and ancestral spirituality. And the Christianizing force from my ancestors was slavery. They learned these precepts at the tail of a whip. And so I wanted to talk a, a little bit about that because it also, it's pivotal, Christianity is pivotal in getting us to look at gender and sexuality in a particularly rigid way and not the way that our ancestors in Africa thought about it. Mm -hmm. So I knew that a critique of these ideas was gonna be a part of what I was writing about in The Prophets. And how I came to the title was because um, I realized that Samuel and Isaiah needed witnesses. And um, as I started crafting and giving these characters names, I realized how biblical this was sounding and I thought, these are these characters are in their own way prophets, particularly when I dreamt a line that was a direct address 
and how, that's how I got the ancestral voices that come in and out of the of the novel. And I knew I was like, oh, okay, so this is like prophecy. So why not entitle it the prophets? But then you also use that um, to reinforce the weight of names, right? Every character has a name that is significant for their story. It ties into their backstory and to the biblical story together. Um, and I, I, I loved that. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of names, finding their name, right? You have characters spending the whole book looking for their names. Yes. Um, unfortunately, because of slavery, we um, we generally did not have the names that our parents intended for us, particularly the um, the earliest enslaved Africans who would name their children based on their own traditions, and then those names would be erased by the slave masters, and they'd be given they'd be given new names. And I wanted all of the new names in this in this book to be related to the Bible, to be Christian names, holy, because I wanted to speak to what Christianity erases and what it erases from the black experience. And so when I was thinking of naming particular characters, I wanted to get as close as I possibly could to what those biblical names meant in the Bible, how those, how those biblical characters functioned in the Bible. So for example, there's Mary Magdalene and Maggie is based on Mary Magdalene. She's sort of like, rebellious, um, but yet she's close to the central figure. Um, so I kind of did things like that. So one of my favorite examples of that is Essie, who I assumed is named after Esther. Um, and I loved that, I think many people look at the book of Esther as a story of triumph, uh, but actually it was a story of her, I thought being enslaved, right? That she was very much like the characters in the book. And, and I loved that you, you read the story that way. Am I reading that correctly? <laughs> Indeed, although um, Essie comes back in the end and has a moment of triumph that might be read as something other than triumph because of what has to happen, but for her, for her personal journey, that was for her a moment of triumph, which I was trying to replicate in terms of um, Esther's story biblically. So well done. Um, also, I wanted to follow up, you know, you were talking about uh, losing African names um, and uh, you had a one quote in here, let me find it. Oh yes, this one passage where um, one of your characters says to Sarah, nobody wants to hear that old Africa shit. We're here now, ain't we? What difference do it make about before the ship? And, and I thought that was so powerful. Can you talk about that? You know, I have a little bit of um, family story that made me think that might be a authentic way to, uh, um, that Sarah's stories would be um, received. In my family, there's a lot of tragedy when we go back into the 19th century. We often don't know who fathers were. And those stories, I think, and my mother thinks, and my aunts think, might be stories of trigger warning for sexual assault, rape, um, and that, the, that those things are silenced because they're just so painful um, to relive, to think about, to reckon with. And so often when, when, and I'm very inquisitive about my family history, when I go to my, when I went to my great aunts and great uncles to ask these questions, they would just skip over them as though I didn't ask the question. 
And I thought, what, what are they hiding? What's, what's, what can't be faced? And I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Um, when that gentleman says that to Sarah, it, he, he's essentially saying, I can't face that because if I, if I act, actually face that head on, I may not survive it. Uh, so I'm going to one other sort of deep dive into the book that I had to ask you about um, was Ruth came out and she said her chapter starts with here I am, which in Hebrew is this the word hineni, which is this massively loaded, heavy word, right? A, a huge part of the Yom Kippur service. It's throughout the Bible in all kinds of places. And I was so surprised to see it was Ruth who said that. Why? How, how did you give that to her? What I wanted to do with the white characters in the book was I didn't want to make them comic book evil. I wanted to ex I wanted to for myself and also for the reader try to figure out what gets a person to that place of where they can look at another person and not see a person. And for Ruth, it was the it was the realization that she too was not at the top of this pinnacle thing. And her here I am is to assert in her own way in this complicated system in which she gets some benefits, but not all the benefits. And where is her place in, in this system where she grew up with some traumas, she was rescued by this man who, who has all of his own complications and problematics, but where does she fit? And she has to assert where she fits. And that's where the here I am come, comes from. Just fascinating. I mean, it was all of these little twists and turns, the depths of each sentence sometimes that really just drew me in, right? And, and kept me going back and forth, you know, looking to see, did I get this character right, right? Is this Pua and Shifra, the, you know, <laughs> the ones that I know from the story of Exodus? Like, yes, it is. Uh, so just bravo. Thank so you. I need to ask you also, how long did it take to craft this novel? It took um, from, the very first time I put pen to paper to the very last time I put pen to paper was 14 years. Um, I started in my first semester of grad school in 2006 um, in Stacey DeRasmo's class where she charged us with finding objects that our characters would possess. And I found a pair of shackles on the street in New York and really, knew that my character would be enslaved and this was my permission to write about that enslaved character in, in the um, lens of queerness. And I had just been rewriting and rewriting and rewriting for all of these years because I had to also balance work, working full-time. When I was in grad school, I was working two part-time jobs. I started working full-time after I graduated. So I had to find the witching hour and the twilight hours to, um, craft these stories. And also I was afraid to write this book. And so fear was holding me back a little um, because I was afraid of how it would be received um, because I'm talking about two very um, polemical sorts of things. I'm talking about race, gender, sexuality, these sorts of things that people are not always welcoming of. Um, so I was afraid. 
And, um, but something, some voice, some ancestral energy kept me going. And 14 years later, it happened. And I'm so glad you kept at it. I think it's so important for people to hear that it takes so long because a lot of people look at a finished book and they're like, oh, it's beautiful. And it's easy to assume that it just sort of, you know, came out quickly, but no, it was a huge process. Oh my goodness, yes. So I also wanted to ask you about Son of Baldwin, of course, your organization. Um, and I love that you wrote, we can disagree and still love each other unless your disagreement is rooted in my oppression and denial of my humanity and right to exist. Talk yes. about that and Son of Baldwin, please. That quote um, often gets attributed to James Baldwin, which is the highest compliment ever, um, but James Baldwin. That's why I brought it up. I thought it was amazing. <laughs> James Baldwin did not say it. I said it. But thank you to everyone who thinks that James Baldwin said that. Um, and yeah, Son of Baldwin actually started as a result of James Baldwin. I was watching a documentary about his life. Of the documentary, his brother talked about his kind of his last moments before he passed away, and he said, um, he said to me, um, I hope that someone, when they're digging around, they find me in the wreckage because he thought he would be forgotten. And that filled me with such um, fear that he would be forgotten because I thought he was absolutely brilliant. Um, and it also made me say, why aren't we continuing this work? Why aren't we having these conversations that he started? So I started Son of Baldwin for that purpose to talk about race and gender and sexuality and class and all of these things that Baldwin talked about in ways that were new to me. Uh, maybe not new to other people, but certainly new to me. And um, Son of Baldwin was born from there and it, it just grew through word of mouth. I never did any formal promotion. It was just people wanting to take part in these conversations. And I've learned so much um, being part of these conversations. It's been a sort of education for me as, um, and other people tell me it's been, it's been an education for them. And it's just been, um, the, the nature of the internet is that it is often hostile intense spaces, but I, I like to kind of create spaces where we could be civil to one another as well and, and see each other as human beings, even though we're, we're speaking in this digitized space. Um, so it's, it's been challenging, but also rewarding. Fantastic. So my last question for you today is, uh, what kind of advice do you have for new writers or people just starting out? What I wish someone would have told me is it doesn't happen overnight. Revise, revise, revise. Revision is not something to be afraid of. A lot of us, when we start writing, we fall in love with what we write and think that it's perfect just the way it is the very first time. And that is not true. It can always be better, always. And so never take constructive criticism of your writing as um, someone telling you, you can't, you're not a good writer or you can't write. It is part of the process. It is writing is revision. So always revise. And also please write. Don't let any of the pitfalls of the obstacles of the, um, naysayers stop you from writing because your writing is absolutely a necessary intervention. We need you. Writers are witnesses. And we need as many witnesses as possible so that future generations maybe can learn from the errors that we constantly make. Because books are where you find knowledge. 
And you have to contribute to that. You have to tell the truth because oddly enough, fiction is not fact, but it is truth. So please, please, please write. We need you. I love that. Fiction is not fact, but it is truth. Well said. And Morrison said that too. Beautiful. Perfect. Robert, thank you so much. May you sell many, many copies.